Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Muslims in Your Backyard podcast. I'm your host, Haram Shamim. Thank you guys for joining me for another episode of today's podcast. As always, I appreciate the support and for you taking some time out of your day to listen to the podcast. For today's episode, I wanted to focus on the topic that we were discussing in the last episode, which was about the Ummah. And in the last episode, for those of you who may have missed it, we discussed about the conceptual ideas or the theories that go behind what the Ummah should represent, how we conceptualize it, and sort of what the problems or issues with the formulation or the creation of the Ummah is. And so the main focus of the last episode was a broader and more conceptual, I guess, focus on the understanding of what the Ummah is or how Muslims kind of view the Ummah and what is maybe good and the issues with that formulation as well. Where For today's episode, I wanted to take a step back and I wanted to look at what the historical Ummah or what the Ummah before the 21st century really was. And of course, I won't be going through every single time period that Muslims have existed, because of course, <laughs> that would be impossible to do. But I will try to look at sort of some time periods, and, and I'll go through quickly how the Ummah was sort of uh, formulated in some broader senses. Uh, and I think really the point of all of this is that the historical formulation of the Ummah is very different than the one that exists right now, if anything, which really, I mean, I don't think it's controversial to say that there really isn't much of this united Muslim Ummah that exists right now. The point, and I can't emphasize this enough, is that as much as we yearn to, for the past in terms of the glory that some of these Muslim empires or, or areas had, uh, we shouldn't, again, over-romanticize them. And I think I've mentioned this in, in a few episodes, and, and it's just sort of a pet peeve of mine. Uh, you know, and for those of you who don't understand what a pet peeve is, a pet peeve is basically a, a kind of an issue that you always get troubled with uh, because other people constantly do it or something that constantly happens. And it's usually sort of a minor issue. And and I think the over-romantic, the over-romanticization uh, kind of a mouthful there, but the over-romanticization of Muslim history and specifically about kind of the Muslim empires, it can be such a pet peeve of mine because I feel like people overlook some legitimate issues that existed in some of these lands and within some of these rulers as well. And, and of course, I'm not going to go into every single detail, but I'm going to do my best to at least give a sort of a quick breakdown so we can at least have a, a general understanding. And, and as always, I say this many episodes again, that I encourage you to go do your own research. I have a limited amount of time here that I can speak about, but I encourage you, if you do feel interested about something that I've spoken about, Go and do your own research. There's nothing ever wrong with going and trying to learn on your own or, or just doing a, a quick Google search to see what you can find. Before we get into the episode, I just wanted to first clarify that there's two main things that I hope to at least show or get into. Uh, the first being to show that the Ummah has changed and merged into many different formations and formulations throughout the years. Uh, I'm sure many of you who've even looked at history, know that there wasn't just this one united ummah this whole time, but there's also a lot of different aspects to that. For example, there was different times when actual areas that we now consider Muslim actually became majority Muslim. And that's a really interesting point here because of the fact that the ummah 
does grow over time. So the Ummah, for example, at the time of the 9th century, which is about the 800, you know, 800 to uh, 899, it is not the same Ummah that exists now because there's some areas that weren't even Muslim yet. So they weren't even part of the Ummah. And then second, and as I mentioned just a few seconds ago, the romantic notion and the romanticization of the Ummah is also a problem that we should try to get away from. I also wanted to clarify that I'm going to use the term Ummah as a general term to just refer to the Muslim community, uh, and it doesn't necessarily refer to the fully united Muslim community. I'm just going to set, kind of use the word Ummah to refer to all of us rather than you know having to individually recognize every single Muslim person or you know area where there are Muslims. I'm just going to say the Ummah to sort of make it uh, in a broader sense and just make this easier rather than going through every specific detail. So, getting into this episode, I think I first wanted to start off with a quick historical breakdown. And I'm going to try to make this uh, not too history-focused, and that I don't want to get into nitty-gritty details about history, but I'm just going to try to go through uh, every sort of khalifat or sort of ruler that was uh, of basically substantial, uh, I guess, standing within the Muslim Ummah. And I'm not going to talk about necessarily the rulers that had the the strongest empire or the ones that had the most wealth, but I'm rather going to focus on the one that actually relates to the religious significance of the Ummah. And that's usually the one who is defined as maybe the Khalifat or the continuation of the Khalifat, which was usually defined as the ruler of the three holy cities of Islam, being Mecca, Medina, and Jerusalem. And the reason why uh, these were seen, uh, the person who, or the empire, I should say, that ruled these three cities was seen as maybe the, you know, I, I don't know if I'd say uh, the legitimate ruler, but maybe the continuation of the caliphs or, you know, a religious authority within the religion uh, is because of the fact, of course, with Mecca and Medina, uh, the ruler who ruled Mecca or Medina, or I should say controlled Mecca and Medina, was the one who had to take care of Mecca and Medina. So, of course, that was a a very prestigious honor if you were a Muslim ruler, right? Because only the best Muslim rulers would actually get the chance to rule Mecca and Medina. And, and of course, being the ruler of Mecca and Medina, you also have to take care of the people who go on Umrah and Hajj. And this was a very important fact as well, because the Muslim ruler who ruled Mecca and Medina, it was their responsibility usually to make sure that the roads to Mecca and Medina, to make sure that, you know, the, the routes to this area, uh, sorry, the routes to Hajj essentially, were safe for Muslims to go on. And then, of course, with Jerusalem, it is the significance of Jerusalem as the city. I mean, it, it's Jerusalem. I don't think I really need to explain why it's such a you know important, significant thing for Muslims. And so the ruler who usually had control of these three cities wasn't necessarily the strongest Muslim ruler. They weren't necessarily the, you know, the the richest Muslim ruler, but they were one who had a lot of significance and say within the Muslim community because of not just a political strength, but also the religious authority to be the rulers of the three holy cities. And so just going through this list about sort of the rulers who ruled these areas, of course, we start off with the time of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu or actually I should say after the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu death, because it's only after they conquered Jerusalem, right? So it starts off, of course, with the first 
the first Khalifate, which was the Rashidun Khalifate, of course, of the companions. Uh, I don't think I really need to go into detail about that. I think most of us should probably understand uh, what the, the Rashidun Khalifate is. But if you don't, the Rashidun is basically, it refers to the rightly guided Khalifs. And this refers to, of course, the companions that took over after the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu and then continued to rule for about 30 years from 632 to 661 CE. And I'm going to use the Western calendar here rather than the Islamic calendar because it allows us to just give more of a contextualization between the time that these Khalifs actually existed compared to the time that we are in now because I'm assuming that most of us use uh, the Western calendar and refer to right now as 2021. So it just makes it easier uh, to sort of contextualize that. So they ruled, uh, the Rashidun Khalifat ruled from about 632 to 661 CE. And then of course, in 661 CE, if you guys know what the first fitna is, there is basically the, the sort of the civil war uh, among the Muslims. And then the Rashidun Khalifat sort of falls and in its place, the Umayyad Khalifat uh, rises. And the Umayyad were a, a tribe in Mecca. And I think I don't know if this is 100% true, but I believe their leader at this time, or no, not not at this time, but their leader was Abu Sufyan. He was, I believe, the leader of the tribe. I may be wrong if he was a leader of the tribe, but I'm sure you guys recognize the name Abu Sufyan because it's one of his sons. Uh, I believe his name is pronounced as Muwayya. He's the one who takes over and establishes the Umayyad Khalifa. Now, of course, this is a very controversial time. I'm not going to go into the details about the first fitna and, you know, the opposition to, uh, you know, the, to the uh, to Muwayya or to Ali. I'm not going to go into any of that uh, because that itself would take hours to just explain. But essentially, the Umayyad Khalifat rises in 661 and they rule till about 750. Uh, and they, for the most part, expand the Muslim Ummah and it starts to include more of the areas that you're sort of traditional of seeing more of the Middle East areas, some uh, more, uh, you know, areas uh, more to the north in, you know, kind of the Byzantine area around like what is now Turkey and a bit to the east as well. Uh, and of course, North Africa is a place where they expand as well. And Islam starts to expand to North Africa right now as well. And then in 750, uh, the Umayyads are overthrown by what is called the Abbasid Revolution, where the uh, the descendants of the Prophet Muhammad's cousin, Ibn Abbas, uh, they eventually revolt or what I should really say is that they manufacture a revolution against the Umayyads and they are then, uh, the Umayyads are then overthrown and Abbasid the Abbasid uh, kind of family and the Abbasid Khalifat rises and they rule from about 750 to 861 CE uh, or about 750 to about the 9th to the 9th to the 10th century. And so the reason why I'm kind of uh, giving sort of a broad time till when they kind of rule is because they they existed in that time period, but their power had really decreased heavily. But they still, for the most part, were the legitimate Khalifs of the time, they just had lost a lot of territory to other Muslim uh, empires and kings. So they were still the religious and political authority that I was talking about, where they kind of ruled over Jerusalem uh, and Mecca and Medina, uh, but they were not as, as strong as they once were. And, and of course, eventually Jerusalem does get lost, but not yet. 
I also want to mention that the actual Umayyad Khalifate uh, continues to exist. What happens is that the remaining families of the Umayyad Khalifate eventually migrate to what is then considered the Emirate of Cordoba. And so if you guys don't know, it is basically the, the region of Spain that was conquered by Muslims, and it was ruled by the remaining heirs to the throne of the Umayyad Khalifa. And so that dynasty actually continues to exist uh, for some time until, of course, Spain is then conquered by uh, the Christians. And although the Abbasid Caliphate continues to rule, Till about 1258, they're challenged for their power by a Shia dynasty called the Fatimid Khalifid. Uh, and the Fatimids rule from 909 till 1171 CE. And so the Abbasids continue to rule in Baghdad till 1258, uh, but basically they lose most of their power and lose most of their ter territories to other Muslim dynasties. And a few of them actually were Shia dynasties like the Fatimid Khalifid. The Fatimids, at the height of their power, uh, were able to conquer Jerusalem, Mecca, and Medina, and a, a lot of North Africa, including Egypt, which was where they uh, were centralized. And actually, interestingly enough, the Fatimid Caliphate is the dynasty that established this town or the city that we now know as Cairo. Uh, and they are also the dynasty that actually established Al-Azhar University. So two very interesting uh, legacies they left for Egypt there and sort of an interesting remnant of their history uh, as well. But essentially the Fatimids would become, uh, you know, basically the rulers of a large portion of the Muslim community at this time. And then from that, uh, the Fatimids are, are then replaced by what we call the Ayyubid Khalifate. And so the Ayyubids are a Sunni dynasty that was, of course, founded and formed by Salahuddin. And so by taking over the territory that the Fatimids ruled, the Ayyubids then basically established a Sunni dynasty again. The Abbasid Caliphs didn't have any actual power. What they would just do is sort of give a quote-unquote legitimacy uh, to uh, any ruler or sultan in the Muslim world. So for example, when Salahuddin uh, became the ruler and, and conquered different areas of the Middle East, like Egypt and Syria, the Abbasid Caliph quote-unquote recognized Salahuddin as the legitimate ruler, thus making him the legitimate ruler. So the Abbasids at this point were just a puppet rule. Like they were really, they didn't have any legitimate power. They were just sort of figureheads that were part of the community. Uh, and then of course, I, I talked about how the Abbasid Khalif basic, Khalifate ends in 1258. And that's mainly because of the fact that the Mongols invade. And so the Mongols invade and they just wipe out a lot of this area, uh, or sorry, they, they basically invade and they just wreak havoc on the Middle East. And it really destroys you know, the, I guess the last remnants of what was the Khalifate, because uh, essentially what happens is that the Abbasid Khalif at that time gets killed by the Mongols. And then some other family members of his actually go flee to Egypt, where they then uh, get into the, the protection of the Mamluk Sultanate, which ruled at that time and ruled after uh, the Ayyubid Khalifate. And so the Mamluks were a dynasty located within Egypt, and they rule from 1250 to 1517. And the Mamluks essentially are, are the protectors of the Abbasid Khalif. And so the Abbasid Khalif, in response to them protecting him, he recognizes them as the rightful rulers. And so then the Mamluks rule from 1250 to 1517, where they are then defeated in battle by the Ottoman Empire. And so 
this this part of history you guys probably know in terms of the Ottoman. I'm again I'm not going to go into too much detail into them, but the Ottomans of course rule from 1517 essentially to about I guess you would say the 12th the 20th century. Sorry, uh, where of course then uh, the empire falls apart, and after the Ottoman Empire's decline, it did lead to many political and social movements like the Khilafat movement. Uh, for those of you who are in South Asia, you're probably familiar with them. They were a, a movement that was pushing for uh, the unification of uh, the Muslim Ummah and the, you know, the creation uh, of a new Muslim Khalif or you know, the continuation of the Ottoman Empire as the Khalif uh, of the Muslim. And of course, since then, the fall of the Ottoman Empire, we are uh, obviously at what we are right now, where there is no real Khalif. There is no, I don't know, Muslim Empire or ruler, whatever you want to say. There's just a bunch of individual Muslim states. And I really think that the point of going through this is to just look at and understand the different ways that the Khalif and you know the different ways that the rulers of what was considered or you know the legitimate political and religious head of the Muslim Ummah was and you know I know that you know people talk about the the Rashidun the Umayyad and the Abbasid caliphs, but they didn't always exist throughout this time. I mean, there was obviously a time when there was a Shia caliph that ruled Jerusalem and Mecca and Medina, and there was another time when the Crusaders ruled Jerusalem and they threatened that they were going to invade Mecca and Medina, and then of course Salahuddin shows up and he really you know stops that from happening, and you know and in a whole other uh, you know time period. The Mongols invade and they absolutely obliterate most of the Middle East until the Mamluks stop them. And they actually, you know, basically save the Muslim Ummah from being invaded by uh, the, uh, you know, by the Mongols. And they kind of repel the Mongol invasion. And there's a lot more to this, obviously. But I really hope that with me going through this you know, step by step about the kind of different caliphs or, or the rulers that had control over Jerusalem and then Mecca and Medina. I hope, A, I hope it wasn't boring. And if it was, I apologize. Um, I, I don't really like to go through too much of history like this, but I did think it was important to at least go through how there was different empires and rulers of this time periods, but then also to understand, again, that there was no one Ummah or Khalif that just ruled this consistently. I mean, the, the Fatimids were basically a Shia dynasty, which I'm sure some people who are, again, hardline Sunnis probably don't like to hear about, but they did exist. They were at one point a very strong religious and political authority within the Muslim Ummah. Whether or not, you know, the Sunnis of that time recognized them, obviously, I doubt many of them did. But nonetheless, they were a religious and political authority or, you know, the, the rise of the Mamluks, which was basically a Egyptian based empire, not one based in Baghdad, not one based in Damascus or Mecca or Medina, but one based in Egypt. Egypt had all of a sudden become such a substantial player in the Muslim community. And there's different ways of looking at it. But the essential point, again, is that the idea of what the historical ummah was is not this one unified thing. It's changed many times throughout. While at the same time that we're talking about this, I also like to point out that it's very, very important to understand 
that the world that we exist in that is the Muslim world or the areas that are Muslim, at some of these time periods, they were not Muslim. At some of these time periods, Islam hadn't even reached some of these areas. For example, you know, uh, Bosnian or Albanian Muslims in uh, Europe, it's very unlikely that there were any Muslims in Europe because the Ottoman Empire, which spread Islam through, uh, to Europe, hadn't even been founded in, in you know, some of these time periods yet. The Ottomans only come after the Ayyubid Khalifa, right? And they eventually fight and defeat the Mamluks to take over and become the head of the Muslim community. But before that, Islam doesn't spread into Europe. So areas like Bosnia or Albania, they're not even Muslim yet. So they're not even part of the Ummah for a good chunk of the, the empires of the time period that I listed. And I think to really emphasize and show uh, just how different the Muslim world was, you know, through some of these time periods and what it is now, I wanted to just focus on one time period. And I'm just going to focus on the rise of the Ayyubid Caliphate, which happened around 1171. And the reason is, is because a lot of people know about the rise of the Ayyubid Caliphate as well as the story of Salahuddin. So it kind of makes it easier to pick someone that people are already familiar with rather than someone that they're not familiar with. I'm going to go through different regions that are considered Muslim majority and just talk about where Islam was at this point. And so the first place in West Africa, I already mentioned this region before in the episode that I did about the Mali Empire, but the Mali Empire hadn't been formed yet and West Africa, Islam was starting to grow, but it wasn't necessarily a major religion yet. And this is, of course, during the time of uh, the Ayyubid Khalifat when they're actually fighting the Crusaders, which is a very important time period for Muslims. Uh, but again, in West Africa, they were just starting to be Muslim. They weren't Muslim just yet. Uh, in the Horn of Africa, which is the area of like modern-day Somalia, essentially, there were actually uh, many uh, Muslim states or Muslim-majority states, including a famous one called the Sultanate of Mogadishu. In East Africa, Islam was also starting to grow, but it was for the most part just a bunch of smaller states. Uh, North Africa, I mean, I already touched upon this, there were many dynasties that existed, including the Fatimids and the Ayyubids under Salahuddin, and, and there were also some native Berber-based empires and kingdoms that rose in, in North Africa as well, and including in Spain, where some North African empires actually conquered areas of Spain as well. And then in Central Asia, there was a variety of different rulers and empires that came and went, a variety of Turkish, Persian speaking, uh, you know, Afghan, you name it. There, there was a variety of different rulers that came and went. So Central Asia, it's, it's even more complicated to, to really talk about. But the point is that there was many different Muslim rulers that existed in this area. And, and it's no surprise, Central Asia was a place where uh, the original caliphs, the Rashidun, the Umayyads, the Abbas, they also expanded too. So it's not surprising to see a variety of Muslim empires within Central Asia. Meanwhile, in South Asia, uh, so the area of like Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Islam had just begun to sort of creep into the region. There was, of course, uh, you know, areas like uh, Sindh or Punjab uh, or, you know, uh, Balochistan that were starting to be Muslim as well because uh, the Umayyads and the Abbasids had reached basically uh, the region there as the sort of the furthest extent 
to where they had conquered. And so Islam existed in these areas, but in the central heartland, heartland of, of South Asia, Islam wasn't uh, a major religion just yet. It, it was many years later that Islam would become a much bigger religion uh, and a much bigger player. And then finally, in Southeast Asia, so this is more of like the Indonesia-Malaysia region, Islam had not even taken hold yet. In fact, it was a very small religion that was slowly growing. And from what I could find was that it's around this time, actually, in 1171, that the actual first Muslim ruler or kingdoms actually formed. So at this point, Southeast Asia, they're not even Muslim yet. They're not even remotely Muslim or they're at least in the process of being or adopting Islam as their religion. And, and what I really hope that you guys kind of get from looking at this sort of regional perspective is that understanding that during the time of the Ayyubid Khalifat, when many Muslims will talk about how, you know, Islam was at a very, you know, big crossroads where Islam was being tested because the Crusaders were, of course, you know, conquering Muslim lands, they'd conquered Jerusalem, you know, it didn't seem like there was much, much Muslim unity, it didn't seem like there was much Muslim really anything until Salahuddin shows up. And yet, even though the time period where this is happening is a very important and substantial point in Muslim history, in you know the reconquering of Jerusalem and you know the expelling of the Crusaders for the most part from uh, you know the, the Palestine area. Yet, you know, there's a lot of the, the areas that we now consider the Muslim community, they weren't fully integrated within the Muslim community just yet. I mean, even an area like South Asia, like, you know, where we consider, you know, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, these areas that have, a, you know, large Muslim populations, they were not actually fully, uh, I guess you want to say, Islamicized in, in the sense there weren't large Muslim populations, unlike even in India, where, yes, it's a Hindu-majority country, but there are some very, very large Muslim populations within India itself. And so a lot of these communities didn't really exist just yet. And yet during all this time, you know, we would consider what was happening a major point for the Muslim community, but these, these parts that we might look at they weren't fully part of it just yet. And so the idea of what the Muslim community was during the time of Salahuddin is different than what we consider the Muslim community. So the point is that this whole, you know, I guess the, the I guess the idea that the Muslim community was sort of the same throughout time isn't right. The Muslim community grew in different ways since that time period as well. And so the ideas of what the Khalif was or the ideas of who the Khalif ruled over, or where the idea of the Ummah existed, is much different than what we know now. And so this is my kind of main problem when you look in the past for ideas for how you might formulate rule now. You know, people uh, might look at the ways that these, you know, empires ruled and say, well, we must make an empire like that. Not necessarily. The ways and the lives of those people that existed generations ago is very different than the ways that we exist now. I mean, just blatantly, the population is way higher now in the 21st century than it ever was in, you know, the time of Salahuddin or even after. 
the ways that people live is entirely different. And I can't stress this enough because I think a lot of people look at and say, you know, look at the, the old Khalifs and look at how they ruled. But that's just not the time period we live in anymore. And so it's very difficult to say that you can look to them for inspiration in terms of how the Ummah should act or, or you know, how the Ummah should be organized because, you know, the, the time period is just different. And and as well as, you know, the people who are part of the Ummah are not the same. I mean, at the time of, you know, Abu Bakr or Umar, they hadn't even conquered areas of North Africa yet. You know, they hadn't even gone to South Asia yet. So, you know, Pakistanis or Indians weren't even Muslim or they weren't even introduced to Islam just yet. A lot of Africans weren't introduced to Islam just yet. So the identity of what Muslims are or what Muslims represent, you know, we can maybe take some inspiration from the old Khalifs or, or the old time periods. But I can't stress enough that we also have to acknowledge the fact that our time periods are just different. The people who are Muslim and the Muslim community itself has grown. And that's, an, that's not a bad thing, of course. That's a, that's a great thing. But we have to acknowledge and embrace, I think, that diversity rather than trying to maybe ignore it. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to ignore, you know, the old Khalifs or, or the ways that things were. Obviously not. But I think that there's a, a, an important lesson to not get too caught up in idolizing the way that people in the past viewed the world or the way that they rule the world and maybe embracing new futures for the Muslim Ummah as well. And I think that for one thing, you know, people who constantly bring up about, you know, the Khalifs and whatnot, they kind of are missing a point about the three original Khalifids, being the Rashidun, the Umayyad, and the Abbasids. And I, I mentioned this before about how they claim their legitimacy, but I'll mention it again that they all claim their legitimacy from being basically the companions or being a descendant, not necessarily of the Prophet Muhammad himself, but from being a descendant of maybe his family members or people who were close to him. And so the Rashiduns, of course, were the companions, the rightly guided Khalifs, everyone knows that. The Umayyads, like I said, were a descendant of the Umayyad tribe and the Abbasids were a descendant of Ibn Abbas. And so this, through this, they then claim the religious and political authority. Well, if you look at the modern day, how are you going to do that? One of the reasons why they were able to claim that authority and have that rule or at least the legitimacy in the eyes of a lot of the Muslim people was because they had that connection. Do any of us have that connection anymore? I don't know. I mean, I, I know I always hear these stories of people who like claim to be descendants of, you know, the Prophet wasalam, or, you know, his family members. But how do you prove that now? Like, seriously, it's been, I don't know, years since then. How do you claim that you still have legitimacy or a connection to that? And I think that that's one of the reasons why I would say that it's time to maybe Think of new ways of organizing the ummah and not just saying, you know, the khalif, the khalif, the khalif, because it's not really a thing anymore. And then, you know, the funny thing is, is that even after that, you know, the Abbasid Khalifid, I mentioned how they were overthrown by the Mongols and then they were protected by the Mamluks. Basically, the Abbasid Khalif became a, a puppet ruler. It was basically a, a guy who, or it was always a guy, it was never a woman. It, it was always a, a man who was the Khalif. But he was basically just a, a puppet state ruler who was protected by the Mamluks and he would basically designate different rulers the right to rule. Uh, and, I, and I think I might have mentioned this a bit before, 
But essentially, the, the Khalifat became a role where he would designate these sultans to rule on his behalf, quote-unquote. And so that's why uh, ever since the fall of the Abbasid Khalif, uh, or the Abbasid Khalifat, uh, the names of Muslim kingdoms, they weren't called necessarily the Khalifs anymore. So it wasn't like the Abbasid Khalif, or Abbasid Khalifat, sorry. It would be something like the Mughal Empire, or it would be something like uh, the Mamluk Sultanate, because Sultan means king in Arabic. So they were sort of recognizing that they aren't the Khalif, because the Khalif was the Abbasid Khalif, but they were recognizing that they were the king of a land that was that they were allowed to rule on behalf, quote-unquote, of the Abbasid Khalif. And this is a really important distinction to remember when you're thinking about how the historical ummas were, because what this really designates is that they were not this one united caliph. They were what, what they were really more of a, a a regional rulers. So they were essentially just different areas that were ruled by regional entities. And I think that that's interesting because in the last episode I did mention that you know one kind of conception you might have of the, you know, the ummah or the khalifate is to rather just have sort of regional rulers who were assigned their own areas and they would just sort of rule within those, uh, you know, I guess communities or territories. And there's a good point to be made that a lot of Muslim history was just like that. There wasn't really this one, you know, khalif who had all this control over everything. And, and yes, the Abbasid khalif existed, but like I said, he, he was a puppet state. He was a puppet ruler. He didn't actually have any power. He couldn't tell someone, you know, that they were no longer the ruler. He was just a puppet ruler who was basically, you know, a person who would legitimize, quote unquote, a person's right to rule. And so, you know, the thing is, is that as the Muslim ummah started to get, you know, more diverse and more complex, it of course became much harder to have just one centralized government. And, you know, a lot of the success of the years that people talk about, you know, a lot of these successful empires like, like the Mamluks or, you know, the Ayyubids or even the Mughals or, uh, you know, the Seljuk Sultanate, uh, they were mainly regional empires. They were not this one centralized government. And and of course, I'm not looking at them for, you know, inspiration to how you would formulate a government, but maybe there is some credence or some uh, more, uh, I guess, investigation, let's say it that way, that needs to go into an understanding of that it's it might not be better to have a centralized government. That might not be the best idea and that maybe it is kind of better to have a more regional perspective of, you know, the Ummah's organization because it usually allows people who are of similar backgrounds to, you know, sort of unite as one. And, you know, one of the problems that came through the, you know, Abbasid and the Umayyad Khalifate was that the Abbasids and the Umayyads were predominantly Arab or Persian, and they were ruling over people who were not Arab or Persian, uh, like North Africans, for example. Although North Africans may speak Arabic, and they are at times considered part of the Arab world, they're not technically Arabs per se, and I'm not trying to say that they're not Arab, but I'm saying that their descendant, or, you know, I guess their ancestry is, is a better word, uh, they're not all just Arab, like there's the native Berbers of North Africa, you know, they're separate and they have sort of their own separate identity from maybe, you know, the traditional Arab homelands of Saudi Arabia and, you know, the Middle East. After the fall of these caliphs, regional empires rose and existed for quite some time. 
and they were quite successful in the rule as well. I also think that it's important to point out that at the same time, a lot of these rulers that people often you know, look at or idolize throughout history, a lot of them were not as, uh, how should I say, um, a lot of them were not as Muslim as you might want some of them to be. Uh, you know, I, I've read a lot of history about some of these rulers and whatnot. And, you know, a lot of them, they did drink alcohol. They did do drugs. They had multiple wives. They thought of themselves as, you know, the supreme authority of their land. So there's also another problem that I'd like to point out that maybe we don't talk about enough is that just point blank, maybe we just shouldn't look at history for, you know, guidance in terms of how we should idolize or look at what the proper form formulation of the ummah is because a lot of the rulers of these lands they did a lot of non-islamic things a lot of them were brutal to their enemies um, they had uh, you know a lot of violent uh, moments where they would you know massacre and kill people which of course in islam uh, you know the, the rules of war don't allow that right like you're not supposed to kill women and children or you know men who have who are not fighting you Right. Like in Islam, if I'm remembering this correctly, and I hope I am, if someone gives up, like if they, you know, if they accept defeat, you're not supposed to kill them. You're just supposed to, you know, allow them to have peace. And that's it. A lot of these Muslim rulers did not do that. Uh, you know, one that comes to my mind is Timur. Uh, I don't know if you guys know, he's also called Tamerlane, you know, the Timurid Empire. It mainly ruled Central Asia, the Persian area, and, and parts of like Afghanistan uh, as well. Uh, he was well known for his brutality. Uh, and he was a Muslim ruler who was fighting other Muslims. And yet, you know, he massacred and killed a lot of Muslims in, in the process. And and yet, you know, he was ruling on a quote-unquote Muslim empire. And, you know, a lot of people look at him as a, a great, you know, empire that he makes. But really, it was built on the blood of other Muslims, right? So maybe not the best kind of uh, empire to look towards. And, you know, a lot of empires did the same thing. Like, let's look at something like uh, the Mamluk Sultanate, for example. Uh, they went to war with other Muslims as well. It was not uncommon. In fact, the Ottoman Empire and the Safavid dynasty in, in Iran, they went to war for countless years as well. And they were both two Muslims going to war. Although I guess the Safavids were a Shia dynasty, but still they were Muslim and they were going to war with each other. Which is why, again, I go back to the point of not over-romanticizing the past and not over-romanticizing the old Muslim rulers or any of these kings. I'm not trying to denounce any of them. I'm not saying that you know they were un-Islamic or that they weren't religious people or God-fearing people. But all I'm saying is that some of them did actions that we would consider as un-Islamic. And again, like, I'm not trying to denounce them, but I'm just saying that sometimes when you idolize certain religious figures, or certain historical figures, I should say, sorry, not religious figures, historical figures, when you idolize certain historical figures, uh, it's best at times maybe not to over-idolize them. And, and I think sometimes people have that when they get too caught up in trying to look at the glory days of Islam. And I want to make it clear here that in this episode and in the previous episode, I'm not necessarily trying to endorse the idea of making a one unified ummah or, you know, a regional entity. I'm more or less just saying that 
we should think about these things. I'm not saying that we necessarily have to do them or that, you know, this isn't a call to action in, in any way. It's just more of saying, you know, when we say the ummah, when we think of the ummah, what do we really think about? And I think that we should really take a second to, to understand what was good and what was bad about these old formulations or, you know, the, the I guess, the environment that these ummahs existed in. Uh, because I do think there's more than one. I, I don't think, again, like I mentioned before, there's not just one ummah that has always existed throughout time. It's grown. And, and even to this day, it's still growing. You know, there's Muslims in North America, for example, that are, you know, have no connection to the Middle East or anywhere in, you know, Asia or in Africa. They're from North America or they're from South America or they're from Europe and they're converting to Islam. So I really think that the way that we look at the ummah, it can't be just looking at the past. But at the same time, again, I'm not dismissing anything otherwise and I'm not endorsing anything either. I really just wanted to make these two episodes for us to think about what the ummah is in the 21st century. And when we say that as Muslims in the 21st century, what does that really mean? And so in conclusion, thank you guys so much for listening to today's episode on the ummah, as well as last week's episode on the conceptual understandings of the ummah. I hope you enjoyed both of these episodes. And if you haven't already, go please listen to the previous episodes of this podcast. Uh, But again, I hope you did enjoy this episode. Uh, If you did enjoy it, please remember to leave a five-star review on the podcast host that you are listening to this from. Uh, Good reviews will allow me to continue making this show. And also, I appreciate your feedback. As well as if you guys could go and follow me on Instagram, it's Muslims in Your Backyard. I do individual posts on my Instagram page, as well as I will do episode updates and just podcast updates through the Instagram page as well. But either than that, uh, thank you guys so much for listening. As always, I appreciate the support and for you taking some time out of your day to listen to the podcast. And with that being said, inshallah and alafis, we'll meet again. Thank you.